This is the Energy Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. That's what's going to be, I think, truly transformational to a lot of businesses, and hydrogen fuel cells enable a lot of use cases with batteries. By covering the surfaces in floating solar PV panels, you can not only generate electricity on site, you can actually purify the water. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another MarketScale Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And today we're joined by Chris Davis, VP of Smart Cities for Simcom Lighting, and Julia Luongo. She's a managing consultant at Rambles Air Quality Practice based out of San Francisco. And we're chatting with Chris and Julia today to dissect the issue of environmental air quality. It's a key issue in some of our largest cities today, and not just in the States, but looking internationally. Um, We have giant booms of construction in countries like China and India. And as those cities develop and get larger and the populations increase, we need to be worrying about the air quality of those cities. Are citizens safe? Um, Are we doing everything we can to keep that air quality pristine? So we're going to go ahead and jump in, look at the major reasons for why air quality is important, how it gets regulated, what the key pollutants are, and how businesses can step in to do their part. Julia, Chris, how are you both doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Good. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, great to have you both on here. Chris, uh, is this your first podcast with us? It is, so we're glad to be here. Thank you, Daniel. Absolutely, yeah. We've had someone else from SimCon on the podcast. We've had um, Onil Agrawal, and that was a fabulous conversation, and I'm excited to dig into this one. Um, you know, really, the main reason why this p- really tickles my mind is because I think in many ways we've seen several different trends impact environmental air quality in general, um, one of them being the rideshare trend. I think the fact that, and I, I've definitely read up on this, the fact that we've had a an influx away from public transit and a lot of people are finding convenience and accessibility with Uber or Lyft or any other rideshare program, that's putting more cars back on the road and therefore putting more pollutants in the air. And so I think a lot of times these environmental issues are, you know, cause and effect from different social movements. And it's just interesting to see a very timely time to be chatting about environmental air quality. So let's start with Julia, actually. Julia, why don't you give us a rundown of what the major reasons are, both regulatory and social, also environmental and economic, that compel cities and utilities to measure their environmental air quality. I mean, I think just the general uh, environmental aspect of it is probably what comes to mind, but all the other regulatory and economic reasons are just as important. So uh, go ahead and fill us in. Sure, right. So I would say that typically the major reason was always regulatory. Uh, So historically, we've had to do ambient air monitoring of of regional air quality, and this is more for legal compliance. So in the United States, for example, we have the National Ambient Air Monitoring Standards. Um, And so that's sort of a a very high class of monitoring. Um, Those monitors are quite expensive, and you can only have very few for a large region or a city. Um, And so some of these reasons for why we measure are changing because we're seeing new technologies that are more inexpensive, um, and people want to understand much more localized impacts instead of regional impacts. 
So we're really starting to see monitoring in, in new ways, uh, ways that are social, um, ways that are really fueled by the public, public awareness and, um, and things like that. Right. Well, I mean, I think when you have constituents in a city and they can maybe feel or at least smell the effects of, hey, this, <laughs> my air is always polluted or it's, it's um, you know, foggy with, with uh, pollutants, then, yeah, I think you're going to have that open line of communication. And uh, you can also blame it on social media to a degree. The fact that people can get their thoughts and their concerns across much more quickly makes for that social push to um, to be just as important as the regulatory or the environmental reasons because you have people that are actively concerned about we got to make sure that the air in you know my community in my city is up to code basically absolutely and and actually another um, I think another thing that's really drawing attention are wildfires. Uh, so we get a lot of people wanting to know, you know, uh, there's this event I can't control. Uh, what am I being exposed to? So I think uh, that's also bringing uh, bringing the issue of air quality, you know, a little closer to, to some people. Definitely. So I'm glad you brought up wildfires and that we were just talking about vehicles in general. Um, but I think this sets us up for looking at the key pollutants themselves. Um, what are those key pollutants that can affect air quality? What are some that are the ones that immediately come to mind? What are some hidden ones that often people don't think of? And um, how do these cities measure them as well? Yeah, so uh, there, the key pollutants, it varies on the type of monitoring. So again, traditionally in the more regulatory and legal compliance um, side of things, uh, it was what we call the criteria pollutants. Um, and these are ozone, particulate matter, carbon monoxide, sulfur, sulfur dioxide, uh, nitrogen dioxide, and lead. But um, now with the emergence of sensors, uh, you're seeing a lot of different pollutants being measured. And, and you also have uh, sensors that are sort of ready to measure some pollutants. And the technology is still being worked on for some of these other types of pollutants. And so um, I would say the, the key pollutant to measure really depends on what a city's goal is of a monitoring program. So just to give you some examples, um, if you're trying to do, uh, say, monitoring along a fence line of a facility, you're going to be targeting specific pollutants. Um, for example, volatile organic compounds, you may be trying to monitor for a specific compound. Um, or if you know it's a landfill, um, you might have odors, and so you might be monitoring for hydrogen sulfide. So it really comes down to uh, the goal of the monitoring um, to then decide, you know, what are the most important pollutants here. Right, exactly. And, you know, using, uh, I guess, being aware of all the different sources can fluctuate. And, um, you know, I I'm sure being in this industry, you often see every time you think you've found uh, every source, <laughs> another one pops up or there's something that is around the corner that is going to present new challenges to environmental air quality. So, Chris, let me direct this to you. What do you feel like is missing in air quality monitoring today for widespread deployment? Um, I guess that can include changes in, I guess, adapting with what the new pollutant might be around the corner. Um, it could be just the technology infrastructure isn't there. And do you see more gaps in small to medium-sized cities? That's a great uh, set of questions, Daniel. I think from 
the perspective that we see in this market, um, I think one of the big gaps is just general awareness, particularly in the smaller cities. And um, a lot of citizens don't really understand you know, what um, air quality is and how it impacts it. We also see that, um, you know, Julio was talking about the, uh, the agency uh, instrument quality devices, which are quite expensive. And so there hasn't really been until just recently um, sensor-based uh, systems that can be community monitors that can monitor across uh, a wider landscape of the city and, and have more monitoring points. It's really important because um, in the earlier part of the conversation, there's one consideration, which is economic. Cities compete against each other, and despite the fact that Charlotte and Indianapolis are not very close to each other, they're similar-sized cities, and they're com competing for um, new citizens to move in, new businesses, conventions, and tourism. So they can often use air quality as a, a means to attract uh, those types of visitors and, and new residents. You know, our air quality is better than yours, so please move here. That's that's interesting that you're actually starting to see cities utilize it as a, a piece of tourism ammunition, right? Um, did you see that just start to pop up recently in the last few years? You do, and um, I, I, I resided uh, in Asia for about six years, and everybody's probably heard about the fires in Indonesia where the uh, forests are burned off and the peat that underlies them uh, catches on fire and creates, you know, huge smoke all over, um, you know, the S Southeast Asia. And that was, you know, pretty interesting. And so you actually see uh, a lot of tourism sites in Indonesia and the Philippines, etc., where they actually, resorts will report their air quality so that um, they can attract, you know, those tourism dollars. So it's becoming much more aware in terms of a quality of life thing. So, Julia, what would you say is really driving the need for more distributed and granular air quality monitoring? Uh, do you see it as mostly on the regulatory side? Is it a social push? Is it that there are um, new pollutants that are causing people to just be more conscientious about it? What have you seen as the biggest driver? Well, I would say it's that we're able to monitor in a way that we never could before. So previously, in a regulatory context, you would only have a few measurements for a really wide um, region. And people are now, because of this social push, this public awareness, where people want to understand, I don't just want to know what the air quality is like in my city. I want to know what it's like on my block in my neighborhood, because I understand, you know, I have a freeway a few blocks away. Is that affecting me more than if I lived, you know, 10 blocks away? So uh, I would say that, you know, new technologies and being able to monitor in this more granular way using sensors is a big driver. The cost that sensors are more inexpensive is a big driver. And then, and then, as you say, this social push, this public awareness where people, you know, they have the availability now. I can go out and I can buy a PM 2.5, that's particulate matter, um, that's 2.5 microns or less. I can buy a sensor for like $200 um, to just start to understand what is my exposure. And so all of this is really going into uh, and driving this need. 
And then with all those different drivers, obviously deployment of better air quality monitoring is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, so Chris, what would you say are the most successful deployment models that you've seen, whether we're talking small, medium, or you know these monstrous cities, like imagine deploying in New York City? Yeah, great question. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, there's a city here in the Northeast that is located next to uh, Interstate um, 95 which is always under construction, it seems. Um, they're going through urban renewal downtown, so a lot of um, construction, both buildings and streets. And the city is also a working port. So they were very much challenged a few years ago by how do we measure where these um, pollutants are coming from? What are the sources and what can we do about it as we go through this whole revitalization of the downtown area? And what they talked to us about, which did not exist at the time, is can we deploy low-cost air quality sensors that we can put on street light poles and um, collect the data for a period of time to understand what we have and correlate that with other data sets like traffic, for example, or the level of construction activity, and then take those and move it around. So what you're starting to see is the ability to deploy air quality instruments, the lower cost, uh, on street light poles and have the uh, street light provide power to that device, and then if the luminaire on top of that pole is controlled, use that same control network that these controllers run on to communicate the data back so that you have real-time situational awareness and the ability to gather data for future analysis. So it's, it's situational awareness at a lower cost and then be able to um, you know, flexibly deploy those and then gather the data and analyze it later on. Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that data is being used in that capacity is powerful. Um, any sort of actionable decision isn't going to be made in 2019 on anything without being able to read that data and you know, really use it to inform where do we deploy, how do we deploy. Um, you know, what is the best method? What should we be looking for? You can't just blanket statement a deployment for air quality, right? Correct. And the other thing that happens too is, is the location context. And what, what has happened is, you know, there are very low cost uh, GPSs that you can put in uh, luminaires or in these air quality devices. So you now know where the data is actually coming from on a much more granular basis. And so that helps with some of the dynamics that Julia talked about earlier with respect to, you know, I, I, what is it on my block? What is it in my neighborhood? So it's, it's highly important. I just, I, Daniel, I like what you mentioned about, you know, using the word actionable. I think uh, we sometimes get stuck talking about just the data, but I think it's, it's interesting to know what some of the use cases are off the back end. You know, what, what can we actually accomplish with this data? Um, and so I just wanted to give a couple examples of, of uh, things I've seen that you can do with these types of deployments. Uh, one example being uh, a city might, might want to assess the effectiveness of a policy, for example, um, if some sort of uh, traffic management was done uh, to change you know, what types of cars or how many cars can drive in certain areas of a city. Uh, perhaps there's been a mitigation uh, to how you do construction. And so you can use sensors to understand uh, what the impact of, of your actions, of your planning was. Um, so that's a great way that, that sensors can be used. And, and on top of that, it might be uh, screening for hotspots that you maybe didn't know exist um, or doing 
just very localized impact studies. So of you know freeways or or other um, you know industrial sources. Yeah, that's that's a great. Those are two great examples. And I, I also we we know of one use case where there's a small town um, in Alabama on the Georgia Alabama line, just off Interstate 85, and um, it is adjacent to some major rail lines from Atlanta down to the uh, the Gulf, uh, where you have a lot of petrochemical and oil and gas activity. And so they're very much interested in monitoring along the rail lines to know whether or not there's any leakage of hazardous materials, you know, volatile uh, compounds and other gases from these trains as they go by. So it's it's a quality of life and an enforcement issue. Um, how would an engineer in a, in a train know that there's uh, leaking uh, chemicals or gases from the train as it passes through the uh, you know the state going you know down to the Gulf or back from the Gulf up to Atlanta. So obviously we're seeing a lot of benefits from having this varied and also very specific data, right? We're not just getting, like I said, blanket statements of data. We're getting very specific uh, pieces of insight that can then be turned into actionable decisions. So I think it's important to understand how cities and how planners are utilizing this data. Have you seen them adjust to... I guess this higher level of data easily um, are, are they interfacing with it well? Has it been a challenge to adopt all this information and actually make sense of it? What have you both seen? Yeah, let me start. So, Daniel, I think the first issue is, you know, what are the measures and, and what do they mean? And so, um, there's a big push going on to be able to take this data that's been gathered and processed and display it in very simple to use uh, formats. Um, so. Many cities are starting to deploy smart city dashboards in an operations center where they're not only looking at air quality, but on another mashup on the display, traffic data, um, parking, so on and so forth. So, so what we're starting to see is let's first of all display the data so we know uh, what very you know simple trends there are. You know, how does the air quality differ um, day to day in different time periods, you know, the morning rush hour, the evening push home, what's it like at night? And so that's sort of the first step. And then they, they're starting to look at correlation and, uh, you know, how does that relate to traffic and, and, and other data sets? So you're starting to see, you know, this type of work done. But I say we're still pretty early because really until the last year or two, you haven't had these lower cost, more granular systems that have been deployable. Yeah, and and in terms of uh, specifically the type of data that's coming in, I think it's it's important to sort of visualize what it used to be like and what it's like now. So, uh, if historically, uh, let's say a city had five uh, regulatory monitors, so they had data coming in of concentrations of various pollutants at five points in space. Now, with the deployment of sensors you may have concentrations of multiple pollutants uh, coming in at 100 or 200 points in space. And so even though the cost of the hardware of itself has reduced, it's now a lot more effort and, and much more complicated to understand and take action off the back of data where you have 200 locations for multiple pollutants. Um, and so it's both a blessing that we can, you know, have this granularity and start to better understand our environment. But it's also a challenge to deal with uh, that much data and, and how to interpret it and be able to make a decision off the back of it. 
Yeah, Julia, um, if I might add, uh, there is a um, uh, an early stage company that came out of uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and they have a low cost platform which they deployed in Pittsburgh. And I want to say there were 35 to 40 instruments that were all over the city. And that was one of the challenges that they had, and they worked very closely with Carnegie Mellon to provide the environmental researches there, all the data, so that um, they could come up with um, solutions and presentations of that data that were meaningful to smaller and medium-sized cities, which probably didn't have an environmental engineer, you know, an air quality engineer on their staff. So um, you're, you're really right on the money. And if there were um, analytical packages that could help cities and, and, and their officials make high head or tails of what the data is, that would be, I think, really terrific. And I, I think, isn't Ramble doing some work in that space? That's right. Yes. Uh, it's actually this exact um, problem or pain, really, that... Um, birthed a, a, a new venture for us. And so I've been uh, running a, it's sort of a data interpretation and visualization tool that's meant for cities and planners to be able to uh, take data from hundreds of sensors and, and be able to interpret and take action off the back of it. It's called um, Ramble Share um, is, our, is our tool that we've developed. I'm glad you brought up Ramble Share um, because I think it's those kind of tools that are going to assist the professionals in the space who are having to utilize this data. It's going to assist them to actually make those decisions much easier because I was going to say that, like you said, it's a blessing and a challenge to have this much granular data because, well, professionals are going to need to be trained and informed and educated on how to use this data. And so... Yes, we could do that, or we could provide them a much simpler solution that sorts the data, provides it in, in a clear, concise way, and then you can make actionable decisions on it. Is that what you're seeing Ramble Share uh, be able to do? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think, I think the other thing that's happening, Daniel, is that you know, we're really blessed with um, the sensors, which are lower cost, and the instruments, which can be deployed more granularly. And then um, we have the you know ability now to gather all this data and get up into the cloud and, and run platforms like uh, Share to um, help with the analysis and presentation of the data and distribute it to many numbers of people that can actually use it. So it becomes much more, um, let's say, democratic. So we're able to liberate the data, we're able to transmit the data through um, environments like SimCom runs on streetlight poles called the near sky, and then get that back to cloud-based applications and, and have it be published um, the content, the data to, you know, various types of platforms that can, can make it more usable. Okay, so we've got the rundown of why environmental air quality is a key issue today, what the key pollutants are, what is missing from monitoring deployment. I mean, we, we've got the full feel for we're in the era where environmental air quality is not only crucial for your citizens, but you're even seeing cities use it as tourism ammo, right? I mean, it's it's a very important part of today's city function. So I think to wrap things up, we just need to look at how can cities move forward with launching an air quality monitoring program? So Chris and Julia, why don't you give us just some final thoughts on if a city wanted to move forward, we could do small, medium, or large-scale city, what are the logistics of deploying it, how should they go about paying for it and funding the project, 
and really what should they expect to see immediately? You know, what kind of returns um, should they begin to flip through once they get that data back? So, so I can uh, start on the on the economic side. So, the traditional model for the um, agency or ambient air measures that Julia talked about really it was a big capex purchase. Um, these instruments may cost you know ten thousand dollars a gas. So, you're looking at probably eighty to hundred thousand plus in terms of one monitoring site. The instruments that we're talking about for community-based monitoring are in the three thousand dollar range, plus or minus. So what you're actually seeing is um, air quality as a service. Many cities are saying, well, I don't want to buy that instrument. Um, I know it has a shorter useful life, so why don't you just provide me the data and I'll pay you so much per month. So what you're seeing is um, some of the instrument quality people and companies like Simcom saying, well, we'll deploy that outdoors. We'll provide service levels agreement of 99%. You take uh, the service for a couple years and then uh, when that's done, we'll just replace it with a new instrument because the, the life of those sensors is probably two plus years at most. So um, that's kind of the approach that's starting to, to gain some traction. And it's attractive for the cities because it doesn't go in their balance sheet. It's not a CapEx item. It's just an operating expense. And they can often find uh, business partners, you know, community partners that would provide the funding from those and, and get good PR out of it. So that's just one approach that's out there. And And I would say on the planning side of things, my number one message would be that before you get into, you know, what pollutants and what instrument, the most important thing is to ask yourself, what is the goal of my monitoring program? What do I want to accomplish? What action am I looking to take off of the back of this data? Because that's the most important thing to keep in mind. And then you can decide, once you understand what you want to accomplish, you can say, you know, I understand what pollutants I need. I now understand what coverage I need and where I should be citing my sensors. And all of those things can come off the back of that question. But it's important to ask the question first and not, you know, invest in, in a lot of technology to find that it might not suit the, the need uh, that, that you're ultimately after. I think the other thing you're seeing, too, which, which, um, could accelerate this this adoption of air quality in smaller communities is you know we've talked about the cost it's also the flexible deployment being able to take those sensors and move them around after you gather data for a certain time span and the instruments themselves have the ability to be uh, configured to some extent so um, you might be able to host four five at most um, air quality sensors of various types and you can decide okay based upon the, the, the use case and what I'm monitoring, what are the appropriate sensors so I can deploy those very flexibly. So um, that, that I think is really good in terms of being able to address individual community needs. That, that flexibility of configuration of the device and the flexibility to deploy it and to be able to flexibly pay for it as a service. And I think that's the key part of this is every city has different needs. Every city has different you know, citizens that um, live and breathe different um, lives, right? So you don't want to be deploying the same kind of environmental air quality program in New York as you would in McKinney, Texas, where I grew up, right? So it's a, it's a definitely a very um, nuanced process. And it's great to see that more cities 
are wanting this process. And so now there are better tools in place to bring environmental air quality programs to those cities and to do it thoughtfully and uh, with intention. So Julia, Chris, I want to thank you both for joining us on the podcast, giving us this full rundown of the status of environmental air quality and environmental air quality programs. Um, I think it's an exciting time, definitely. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what big initiatives come through from the small city to the large city um, and seeing how they put these tools to use. So thanks again, Julia and Chris, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I agree. It's an exciting time. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is good. And uh, we should come back uh, with a, a refresh in about a year to see where we're at. All right. Well, thanks again to both of you. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.